0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. We live in uncertain times. Things seem to be a lot less stable than they used to be, right? Massive questions about the future linger in many of our minds. Who will win the election and what will happen after the results are in? How much longer will the pandemic impact us? Will the economy recover? What about riots and the police? What about religious liberty and free speech and cancel culture? A lot of ideas and issues seem to be up in the air these days, don't they? Today is different than how it used to be. And I think a lot of us are wondering how different will tomorrow be than today is. Indeed, we live in uncertain times. But I wanna tell you today there's good news which is that God speaks to our uncertainty in his word. And he offers us a sure word about the future. And that's what we're gonna see today as we look at the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And while today's passage may not tell us who's going to win on November 3rd or how much longer we're going to be wearing masks, this passage should give God's people a certainty and a confidence with which we may face the future. As we study this passage, my prayer is that we will be strengthened and prepared for whatever the coming days, weeks, and months may bring, because uh, my prayer is that this text will help us to look beyond our circumstances, to look beyond the headlines, and to see the big picture of what God is doing and of where things are going. And we're going to see that this morning across three points First, we're going to see where the monstrous, wicked power of earthly government leads. Second, we're going to see the not-so-peaceful transition from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. And third, we're going to see the government which rules forever and ever. Let's start with our first point, in which we see where the monstrous, wicked power of earthly government leads. The book of Daniel, chapter 7, and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We'll stop there. Up to this point, the book of Daniel has been a chronological narrative. We have followed Daniel's life from a young teenager to an old man. But now we come to a new division in the book of Daniel, and now we are no longer proceeding chronologically. The events of chapter 7 do not happen after the events of chapter 6. Instead, we have turned back the clock back to when Babylon was in charge. And not only has the time frame of chapter 7 changed from chapter 6, but so has the content of the book. Look at chapter 7 verse 1. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Up to this point, the book of Daniel has been a series of narratives from the life of Daniel. But the final six chapters of this book are quite different. They relate not vignettes from Daniel's life, but rather four visions which Daniel received. Up to now, we've seen Daniel interpret visions that God gave to other people. Now we're going to see visions that God gave to Daniel himself. And in chapter 7, we find the first such vision. And it is a terrifying dream. The first 14 verses of this chapter describe the dream. And then Daniel says in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. What Daniel sees causes him to be filled with anxiety and terror. And so, still in his visionary state, Daniel speaks to one of the figures in the dream who seems to be an angel. And he asks this angel, please explain to me what I am seeing. And then we get the interpretation of the dream in verses 17 through 27, the conversation between Daniel and the angel. One of the things we need to know as we come to chapter 7 and some of the chapters to come is that these visions are heavy in symbolism. The meaning of these visions is not usually self-evident, but thankfully the Bible records not only Daniel's dream but also its meaning so that we can understand what we're reading in these chapters. But even after Daniel learns the meaning of this dream, he still says in the last verse of this chapter, look at verse 28, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed and I kept the matter in my heart. This dream was so profound and terrifying that even knowing what it meant didn't help Daniel. His life was altered by this dream. It distressed him and he pondered it for a long time time. So this is a really significant and important passage we need to look at today. So let's now actually jump in and look at Daniel's dream. And as we do that, we're going to principally focus on verses 1 through 14 in which the dream is described. And as we examine these verses, we're going to pull in the later verses in the chapter which explain what we're seeing. Daniel's dream basically has three parts, and each of these parts corresponds to one of our big points this morning. So in this first point, we're going to look at the first part of Daniel's dream. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. All right, what's going on here? Well, first, Daniel, we're to- told, sees the great sea. The sea here is a symbol. It could be the Mediterranean Sea, because that term is often used to describe the Mediterranean Sea in the Bible. But again, almost all of the imagery in this dream is symbolic. What does the sea represent? Well, for modern people, the sea has a lot of positive associations, right? Vacation, and relaxing, and fishing. That's not how ancient Near Eastern people saw the sea. To them, the sea was a terrifying, dangerous place, a place of chaos and disorder, which is why biblical poetry and prophecy often use the sea as a symbol of untamed rebellion and evil. We saw an example of this a few weeks ago when we studied the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. There, God describes the wicked Babylonian empire as being like the sea because it's so rebellious and sinful. That's what the sea represents. It's the same idea here. This is the chaos of this evil world. And as Daniel looks, the sea is churning. It is being provoked by the four winds of heaven. Probably the idea is that God is agitating against the evil of this world. And from this agitation, the sea spits forth four beasts. Now these beasts are similar to animals. Now, When we think of animals today, we probably think of cute, cuddly animals we see at the zoo. But these aren't those kind of animals. These are ferocious and wild animals. And Modern people don't think much about the dangers of wild animals, usually, unless you hike a bunch. But I would tell you, in the ancient world, you didn't encounter the lion or the bear at the zoo. You encountered them right before you started running for your life, because you knew what those kind of animals could do to you. And Daniel here encounters some terrifying wild beasts. But these aren't just normal animals. These are monstrous, enhanced versions of ferocious animals. And they are different from one another, and they are presented to us in a sequence. Now again, these bizarre beasts are symbols. Daniel is not living a sci-fi movie. These beasts represent something. What do they represent? Well, later in the chapter, the angel tells Daniel in verse 17, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So, again, the sea corresponds to the earth, the fallen world system of chaos and sin, and the four beasts are a sequence of four kings, or perhaps kingdoms, verse 23 suggests, that manifest the fallen world system. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should. Back in chapter 2, you'll remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had a prophetic dream, a towering statue made of four metals and Daniel uh, Daniel was uh, empowered by God to reveal that each of the four metallic sections on this statue spoke of a different era of human history, beginning with Babylon and running through the end of time. And the statue represented the sum total and the flow of human political power. Well, here again, we find a sequence of four items that correspond to the flow of human political power. Now, what's interesting is that when Nebuchadnezzar saw this, What he saw was an image, chapter 2 says. The word is usually used in the Bible to speak of an idol, an object of worship. That's how Nebuchadnezzar saw political power. Something valuable, something to be worshipped, something to seek. But God gives Daniel a different view on human politics. It's not a beautiful object of worship. It is a monstrous and horrific manifestation of evil. It is beastly. All right, what are these four specific kingdoms now that Daniel sees? Well, chapter 7 never explicitly tells us which historical kingdoms these four beasts correspond to. But I do think we can know, and I'll start explaining this by saying that this chapter has some similarities to the vision we saw in chapter 2. And you'll remember in that vision, the first section of the metallic statue was a head of gold, And Daniel told us what the head of gold represented in chapter 2. It represented King Nebuchadnezzar. He said in Daniel 2.37, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, you are the head of gold. God uniquely empowered Nebuchadnezzar to wield authority over this world. We saw that also in chapter 5, where Daniel basically says God gave Nebuchadnezzar a blank check to exercise authority over this world and because of this unique empowerment and authority, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, the most glorious of human kings. Well, how does the sequence of beasts begin in chapter seven? Verse four, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. The first beast is a combination of the lion and the eagle. Two animals associated with nobility and power, not just in our culture, but in ancient times too. The first beast is the noblest of the four kingdoms in this sequence. And so I would again say this probably represents Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar because of the parallel to chapter 2, the first being the most glorious. And because in Jeremiah chapters 4 and 49 and Ezekiel 17, Nebuchadnezzar is described both as a lion and an eagle. And because what is said about this beast is very similar to what actually happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Note that this beast's wings were plucked and later it was given the mind of a man and allowed to stand on two feet. This sure sounds a lot like Daniel chapter four, when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and made Nebuchadnezzar live like an animal for seven years until God restored his mind and his humanity. It's very similar to this. So I think we can safely say the first beast is Babylon. What of the second beast? Verse 5. And behold another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Here we have a bear-like creature in the midst of devouring a fallen animal. And this beast is encouraged to go eat some more. And the distinguishing feature of this beast, other than than its appetite, is that it is asymmetrical. One side of this beast is elevated over the other side. Either the bear is misshapen, or it is frozen in a pose in which one of its legs is raised. We can't know from the text. Now, what does this beast represent? Well, the vision in chapter 2 does not specifically name any of the other kingdoms other than Babylon. So we can't look there for help. But... Next week's passage, Daniel chapter 8, I think, makes this beast a bit clearer. There, Daniel's going to see another animal. Daniel chapter 8, verse 3. A ram with two horns, and both its horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Another animal whose distinguishing feature is asymmetry, just like the bear of chapter 7. You say, well, what's that mean? Daniel chapter eight tells us, verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, the political union we talked about last week, of two powerful Iranian tribes, the Medes, which had been strong for a long time, and the Persians, who eventually supplanted and absorbed the Medes. So that's how I understand the bear-like beast of chapter seven, it's Persia. And this makes sense, because Persia conquered Babylon, so Babylon's first and Persia's second. What of the third beast? Verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another beast like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now in some ways this beast is like the first beast. It's a big cat, but it's inferior. This isn't a lion, it's a leopard. And it has wings, but they're not eagle's wings, just an ordinary bird's. But while this beast lacks uh, nobility, it doesn't lack mobility. It is swift and violent. And the distinguishing feature of the third beast is its association with the number four. Four heads, four wings. And again we find a parallel in chapter 8. Next week we'll see that Daniel sees another animal, a goat that winds up having four horns. And chapter 8 verse 21 tells us that this represents the kingdom of Greece. And so I understand the third beast of chapter seven to stand for Greece, and this makes sense. Because in 336 BC, it was the Greek king, Alexander the Great, who vanquished Persia. And as we'll talk about next week, Alexander's empire in time turned into four different kingdoms governed by four different dynasties. So the first three beasts seem to be Babylon, Persia, and Greece. This brings us now to the fourth beast. And this beast is different. And what Daniel has to say about it comes in three parts or three phases. Let's start with the first phase in which Daniel describes the beast. Look at verse 6. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. Moreover, verse 19, Daniel adds that this beast also has claws of bronze. Now, unlike the first three beasts, the fourth beast is not compared to any animal. It's just said to be different. What we're told is about its temperament. It wants to destroy everything in its path. And its teeth and claws are made of iron and bronze, which were the, the materials used to make weapons in Daniel's day. Friends, this is a creature of war. A beast that is so strange and terrifying that in verse 19, Daniel specifically asks the angel, please tell me about the fourth beast. In verse 23, what the angel tells him is this, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So this is a wicked, aggressive, and domineering nation. Now, the book of Daniel never names what kingdom this is, but I think we should understand this to be Rome. And I say that for two reasons. First, the sequence of the first three beasts reflects conquest. Persia conquered Babylon. Greece conquered Persia. So the next question is, who conquered Greece? And the answer is Rome. By the year 30 BC, the core of what had been the Greek empire was totally subsumed within the Roman empire. Rome succeeds Greece. And second, Rome uniquely meets the description of the fourth beast. Rome was aggressive in its expansion. It had an efficient system of warfare used to subdue the known world. Rome was domineering and cruel. And it compelled every nation it encountered to bow or be destroyed. Rome is the fourth beast. But now Daniel reveals more about the fourth beast, and this is the second part of the vision of the fourth beast. And what we see here is like the camera zooms in on one particular feature of the fourth beast. Look at verse 7. He says, it had ten horns, and I considered the horns. First, we might not think that these horns are significant, but Daniel seems to think that they are. And in verse 20, Daniel asks the angel to explain the ten horns that were on its head. And as the angel speaks, we learn that these ten horns are, in fact, quite significant. Verse 24, he says, As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. The fourth beast is Rome, but something emerges from Rome. Something which is still connected to Rome, but which is different from it. The second phase of the fourth beast, Rome part two, if you will. And this phase consists of ten kings, or again, perhaps these are kingdoms, because these terms seem to be interchangeable in the vision. And I would tell you that this is similar to what we saw a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, the fourth metallic section of the statue was legs of iron. And Daniel said in Daniel 2.40, this empire is as strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. It's just like what he's saying in chapter 7 about the fourth beast. And just like in chapter 7, the legs of iron gave way to something new. Something which was partly the same and partly different. The legs of iron gave way to the feet of iron mixed with clay. It's still iron, in some way it's still the fourth kingdom, but now it's changed. It lingers on in a new form. And in the sermon on chapter 2, we said this is in fact what happened to the Roman Empire. Rome never really ended. Yes, in time, the political institution of the Roman Empire fell. But the spirit and the glory of Rome lingered on, inspiring ambition and violence in many nations, especially the nations of the West, who all seem to want to be Rome. Have you ever noticed that? How all these countries have Roman-like imagery, eagles and pillars and the same kind of architecture. They all harbor imperial ambitions like Rome. Some of them were colonial empires, like Britain, Holland, Spain, and Portugal. Some of them were just European empires, like the Holy Roman Empire, Napoleonic France, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia. You know, Russia calls itself, or calls Moscow, the third Rome. Rome's influence lingers on, the beast lives on. So what of the 10 horns? Well, there are many views that seek to explain what these ten horns represent, what specifically these kings or kingdoms are. Many people believe they represent a future confederacy of European states who will stand at the head of a new Roman empire. That's certainly possible. Perhaps they represent the various western nations which at various times have aspired to take the mantle of Rome. I think that's The best explanation personally. But I would tell you I don't think we can at this moment know with certainty what political entities these horns represent. That remains to be seen. But these ten horns are not themselves the final phase of the fourth beast. Because in verse 8, Daniel describes something happening in the midst of these horns. And this is the third phase in the life of Rome, the fourth beast. Verse 8, he says, I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Daniel further describes this scene in verse 20. He says, The other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn had eyes and a mouth and it spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. I looked, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. All right, in the midst of the 10 horns, an 11th horn emerges, and at first it is small, but it unseats three of the established horns, and this small horn grows, and it grows, and in time it becomes greater in size than the other, Horns. His defining features are his eyes and his mouth. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we learn that this horn is aggressive not only towards other nations. He makes war on the saints, and for a time he enjoys victory over the people of God. Friends, this is an evil figure, and we learn about his wickedness from the angel who interprets the vision. In verse 24, who says, out of this kingdom, out of Rome, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So what does that mean? The little horn is an individual. I think that's what the text means when it speaks of him having the eyes of a man. This This is a man. His rule is the third and final phase of Rome, the fourth beast. In fact, we'll see in a minute, he is the final phase of world history as we know it. He is a political leader, and initially he will be the leader of something which seems insignificant or small, which has not been a prominent successor to the legacy of Rome. But he will violently defeat three leaders or nations who had been successors to Rome. And as he grows prominent, his rule is marked by three things. First, by blasphemy. That's what the text means when it speaks of a mouth speaking great things. He speaks arrogant words of self-promotion. And he speaks against the Lord. Second, his reign is marked by persecution. He will oppress the people of God and wear them out. Oppression to the point of misery and exhaustion. We'll see in chapter 9, this figure will legally restrict the worship of the Lord. Revelation 13 tells us he will use politics and economics to squeeze the people of God. And those who remain faithful will suffer much. And third, his reign is marked by insane arrogance. He doesn't just say arrogant things. He thinks and does arrogant things. He will change the times. He will reinvent the calendar and the holidays on it. You know, there's a a guy in our world today who's done that. He's the president of Turkmenistan. He took the calendar and he renamed all the months after himself and his mama. That's crazy. That's what this guy's going to do. He will remake the law. Probably the idea is he's going to try to redefine what is morally acceptable and unacceptable. And God will allow this evil figure to have power for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, probably three and a half years say, okay, well, who is this little horn? This is the future figure known as the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, Paul calls him. This is the beast who rises from the sea in Revelation 13. And just like this vision, a beast rising from the sea. But there, he's, he's the only beast that emerges. He's the ultimate expression of the wickedness of this world. And I want you to listen to this. This is 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is an arrogant political leader who will claim to be God, who is empowered and perhaps possessed by Satan, and who will bolster his grand claims with false miracles that will take millions of unbelievers in. And friends, this is where the monstrous, wicked power of earthly government leads. This is its destiny, to the worldwide rule of Satan's man deceiving the world and say, wow, that's a lot to take in. What should I take from this? Okay, I think there are several important applications of these verses for us. First, trust God's word. This vision was given to Daniel about 10 years before Babylon fell to Persia, about 214 years before Persia fell to Greece, and about 520 years before Greece fell to Rome. To Daniel, all of this was yet future. But for us today, all of this is in the past. This is our history But God knew it all beforehand, and God declared what was going to happen. Fulfilled prophecy is a major way that we can know that the God of the Bible is the living God. Isaiah 46, God says, I am God, and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God knows the, be- the end from the beginning, and God brings it to pass. And so, friends, we can trust that what he says about our future will happen. Application two here, friends. Learn the trajectory of human history. There's this idea today that, just like the Beatles once sang, it's getting better, a little better all the time. Many political activists today urge Christians to embrace the world's ideas about what is permissible. To get on the right side of history, they say. As though they know where history ends. And they think it's going to be some sort of humanist utopia. Where humanity has freed itself from the Lord and His reign and and His moral restraint. But friends, that's a lie. You know, things aren't constantly getting better. You say, well, yes, yes, but what about what about medicine, and what about the flush toilet, and what about sliced bread? I, I, I can see some things are better than they used to be. But human culture is not some high and lofty thing. It is an outgrowth of the sinful wretchedness of human rebellion. And, and yes, in some ways life is getting better, but it isn't all getting better. Think about Daniel 2, the statue. The, the further down you go on the statue, the further along you go on the timeline, each piece of metal gets less and less valuable. Humanity is on a path of increasing degradation, not increasing glory. And it all ends with the most evil dictator in world history, empowered by Satan, ruling over the earth, and worshipped by millions. That's not getting better. Things are going to get worse, friends. Third, and this is very important, we need to see human politics as God does. A lot of Christians today are enamored by politics. I've said before that I think politics is an idol which has been brought into the house of the Lord. But what does this dream teach us about human politics? It is a beastly, evil manifestation of the fallenness of this world. You know, when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and praiseworthy, think about these things, he's basically talking about the opposite of politics as we see them today. Friends, our favorite pastime, our favorite conversation topic, our favorite TV program, our favorite passion should not be politics. Renew your minds, friends. And finally, I think it's important that we acquaint ourselves with the characteristics of the Antichrist. Why? Because he's coming. But before he comes, I want you to listen to 1 John two eighteen. John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Before the final Antichrist comes, many false, wicked Antichrists will appear. Leaders who share his characteristics learn to recognize the attributes of the Antichrist. He speaks arrogant words of self-promotion. He blasphemes the Lord. He desires worship. He persecutes God's people. He calls good evil and evil good. These are the hallmarks of the Antichrist. Recognize them. And where you see them, don't be taken in. Because Antichrist not only wants to persecute the people of God, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 24, he wants to deceive the elect. So be watchful for political and religious elites who manifest these characteristics. Do not be taken in by them. All right, so what do we see in these verses? Some pretty bad news. As human history goes on, things will get worse. But let me now give you some good news as we come to our second point, which is the not-so-peaceful transition from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. As the little horn is raving his words of blasphemy, Daniel's dream cuts away to a different scene. And what a contrast we have. Look at verse 9. And here we see true power and true righteous rule as we behold the court of heaven. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What we find here is a courtroom scene, a scene of judgment. Thrones are established, but it's not clear from this passage who sits on these multiple thrones. Rather, in the midst of these thrones, we focus on one figure, the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. Now, I remind you that this is a vision, because, of course, Daniel in the flesh could not see God and live. But God allows Daniel to perceive him in this vision. And what Daniel sees is a figure with white hair, one who is quite old. And that gets at the idea that God is eternal. God uh, has no beginning or end. He is beyond time. He has borne witness to all the ages. Not only is his hair white, but his garments are white. Speaking of his holiness, his purity. This is a righteous king. Not like that wretched little horn or the succession of beasts. Here is the true seat of nobility and power. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat. And his throne is fire. Often God's presence is signaled by fire in the Bible. As at Sinai, Exodus 19 says, God descended on the mountain in fire. Fire befits the presence of God. It's bright as God is luminous. It's dangerous as Almighty God is awesome and before Him all must tremble. And fire is destructive as God's judgment is destructive. And so God sits on a fiery throne. And this throne, we're told, has wheels If you know your Old Testament well, this may remind you of the vision of Ezekiel, who sees God's enthroned presence above wheels. A throne above a chariot, a war throne, and that's what we see here too. God is on His war throne, and He's not alone. He comes with a vast, countless host, vast, angelic armies at His disposal. Friends, God is at war with this fallen and rebellious world. And you need to know that God is not idle. When we we see the wickedness of our society, when we see the horrors of abortion, when we see the horrors of the Holocaust, when we see the horrors of war, when we see the horrors of racial injustice, when we see horrible things in this world, and we say, where is God? Friends, God is taking note. He is not idle. He is at war. And from His war throne, God now establishes a court to pronounce fearful judgment upon His adversaries. And a stream of fire comes forth from the Almighty, ready to be launched upon all those who defy His rightful rule. And the books are opened. The volumes that record the wicked deeds of those who are about to face His wrath. And now justice is executed. And as God's fire bursts forth, we cut back to the first scene. The little horn is still presumptuously boasting. Look at verse 11. Daniel says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. He's still chattering away. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The river of fire doesn't just slay the little horn, it slays the fourth beast. Not just does Antichrist fall, but the empire, the system of Rome, whose legacy and false glory has been the sum total of human ambition for 2,000 years, whose sin and violence has inspired so much ruin. In a moment, it is all brought to nothing. The beast dies and its body's burned. It will utterly cease to be. And in its place, we'll see in a minute, comes the kingdom of God. But verse 12 says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now this is a hard verse to understand, but I think the idea is that at this point in time, when God executes judgment on the Antichrist and ends the system of Rome, the original three beasts will continue in some form. This may get at an idea we see in the prophecies of Isaiah and Zechariah. That when the kingdom of Christ is established on the earth, other nations continue to exist. They will operate under the lordship of Jesus. But the era when Christ reigns on earth will see the continuation of other political entities for a season. But they will no longer have dominion or independent rule. All right, now what should we take from these verses? From the garden, humanity has wanted to be like God. We have wanted to control our own destiny and chart our own course. And we pretend that this is a noble project. But what's Isaiah 53 say? All we like sheep have gone astray. Jesus says in Matthew 7, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The project of human political power is an expression of the arrogance of man. Now to be sure, God institutes government. Genesis 9 tells us that and Romans 13 tells us that. But humanity has misused this responsibility and perverted this power in an attempt to be rid of accountability, to be rid of constraint from the Lord. As we read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. And listen to what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. Let's be rid of God. Let's do what we want. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord mocks the insane arrogance of man. There is no escape from the rule of the Lord and the judgment to which He calls us to account. And one day He will bring a sudden and total end to humanity's pitifully laughable attempt to cast off His rule. Judgment is coming, not just for individuals, but for countries and societies. God judges the arrogant nation, the violent nation, the immoral nation. We've talked about all of this in recent weeks. And that means that God judges every nation. A number of years ago, a political scientist named Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History, in which he said, American-style democracy has triumphed. Every nation will follow our example, and this will lead to worldwide peace, and history will be no more. His idea didn't even last 20 years without people laughing at it, because it's been shown to be absurd. History doesn't end with the triumph of rebellious humanity. History, as we know it, ends with the overthrow of the wicked regime of human power. Every wicked policy, every ungodly politician, every unjust system will be held to account. We saw this in chapter 2. What happened to that great metallic statue, do you remember? A stone was cut out by human hand, verse 34 says, or by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. God will intervene in human history in the final phase of the life of the fourth beast. And he will slay it. And more than that, he topples the entire system of human power. The whole statue is destroyed when the, the, sto- the stone strikes the, the statue on the feet in Daniel 2. The interpretation is this in Daniel 2.44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of man will end and the kingdom of God will reign forever. But friends, the transition between these kingdoms, the outburst of God's wrath will be horrific. Revelation 19 tells us that Christ will descend from heaven and war with the nations at Armageddon, a battle that becomes a massacre. Christ will unleash His almighty power upon the rebellious forces of this world. And the aftermath is described in Revelation. A valley filled with blood several feet high. Countless corpses. And the Antichrist is cast into the lake of fire to receive unending torment. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, The Lord Jesus will kill the man of lawlessness with the breadth of His mouth and bring him to nothing. And this is how the reign of man will end and the reign of the Lord will begin. Friends, judgment is coming upon the sin of this world. And a new regime will be established. And that's what we see in our last point. The government which rules forever and ever. We've seen where human politics leads. We've seen that God will execute justice and smash the corrupt regime of human power. But what comes after that? Daniel 7.13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's vision has one final scene. We're still in the heavenly court, the ancient of days. God the Father is still on his throne, but now a new figure appears, one like the Son of Man. Now this phrase, son of man, is an Aramaic term which ordinarily just means a human being. So we have here one who is like a human being. Now we might ask, like a human being? Does that mean that he is not a human being? No, that's not the idea at all. The idea here is to establish a contrast. In verses four through six we saw a number of figures that were like a lion or like a bear or like a leopard. Here now we see one like the son of man. This figure is presented as the opposite. Of the beasts who we have previously encountered. He is righteous, not beastly, in his administration of power. But while this figure seems to be a human being, we're also told that he comes on the clouds of heaven. This is critical for understanding this vision. Throughout the Old Testament, God alone is described as riding on the clouds. Isaiah 19:1, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Psalm 104. He makes the clouds his chariot. Nahum 1:3. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Without exception in the Bible, it is God who rides the clouds, and yet here is one who is like a son of man riding the clouds. He is he is human, but he's something more. He's also divine. And this Son of Man is then brought before the Ancient of Days. A divine figure interacting with another divine figure. God interacting with God. Friends, I would tell you, without the doctrine of the Trinity, this scene would make no sense. Which is why a lot of non-Christian interpretations of this passage don't make sense. But the Christian understanding is there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that allows us to understand this passage. God the Father speaks now with God The Son, and what happens? The Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man a glorious rulership and a kingdom. A kingdom greater than Rome or Greece or Persia. A kingdom greater even than the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. Back in chapter five, remember, Daniel Daniel said that God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. It's very much like what we see here. But even Nebuchadnezzar's glorious reign, the most glorious reign in human history, in which God gave him a blank check of power and authority. was nevertheless beastly, remember? It was a lion and an eagle. They were noble beasts, but they were beasts nonetheless. But the Son of Man is not a beastly ruler. He emerges not from the filth of the chaos of this world, but from the splendor of heaven. He is not vile or degraded by sin. He is glorious and holy. He is what humanity ought to be. And His reign outshines even the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point, Psalm 2 is truly fulfilled. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And in this grant of authority from father to son, we see three things about the coming kingdom of the Son of Man. It will be global. The Son of Man will rule over every people group on earth. It is perpetual. He will reign forever. And it is final. There will be no end or no successor to his Rain. What should we take from these verses? First, we have to ask this critical question, who is the Son of Man? And the answer is Jesus. You say, how do I know that? Because Jesus openly claimed to be the Son of Man. This is the term that Jesus most often uses to refer to himself in the Gospels. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. probably know many of these verses. But when we hear them, we don't think much about this title. We think, oh, that's a strange way Jesus talks about himself. No, the Son of Man is the glorious figure of Daniel 7 who will receive the unending kingdom from the Father. This is who Jesus repeatedly claimed to be. And he didn't shy away from it. And he didn't shy away from the implication that the Son of Man is more than just a man. Now to be sure, Jesus is fully human. He hungered, he got thirsty, he was tempted, he died. But he's also God. He is the one who rides on the clouds. At his ascension, Jesus went back into heaven on a cloud. And Acts 1 says he's coming back in the same way, at his trial. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And remember what Jesus says in Mark 14, 62. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus references two passages, Psalm 110, where an individual is invited by God to sit at his right hand, and Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus says to the priests, you know those passages? They're about me. And they say, that's blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. And Jesus proved it was true when he rose from the dead. Romans 1.4 says, he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, Jesus Christ is the son of man. And that statement is every bit as much about his deity as it is about his humanity. And as the Son of Man, Jesus is the end of history. Jesus is where it is all headed. Jesus will return and establish his reign. He will rule on the earth for a thousand years according to Revelation 20. And he will reign in the new creation forevermore. Friends, this should give us great comfort. We may look at this world system and we may see all of the sin and horror. And we may see our government and its wickedness. And we may be weary We may be disgusted by our politicians, but friends, the regime of corrupt human rulership is not the end of the story because the righteous rule of Jesus is coming. Isaiah 9 says, Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When Jesus is king and He speaks, everybody's going to know that what He says is true. When Jesus reigns, war and hostility will cease. When Jesus rules, injustice will be a thing of the past. A righteous ruler. Can you imagine it? It's tough to think about. We don't see it. That's great, you think, but when's it going to happen? What's it have to do with me? Friend, if you have repentantly entrusted yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection, one day you will live under Jesus' rule in this kingdom. Daniel says so in two comments he makes later in this chapter. Verse 22 says judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Listen to the angel who interprets the dream in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The kingdom truly belongs to Christ the son of man. But what does he do with his kingdom? He shares it with his people from all ages. said in recent weeks, if you know Christ, you are in exile. This world is not your home. Your citizenship's not here. It's in the new Jerusalem, which is to come. And here we see the benefits of that citizenship. Verses say that judgment will be given for God's people. The verse could be taken in two ways. It could mean that the people of God who for so long have suffered under all the corrupt politics of this world will one day get justice. Justice will be done. God will stand up and fully justify and vindicate us. But there's another way to understand this. That Jesus, the ultimate final judge and king, in some way that we cannot fully understand now, delegates some of his rulership and judicial power to believers. Judgment is given to believers. We find this explicitly in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6.2. Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Paul says to the Corinthians, you've got problems in your church. Figure out how to deal with them, because someday God's going to give you a lot more responsibility. Same idea is described in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, does that sound familiar? And seated on them, here we find out who's sitting on them, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. It's plural. But in the next verse we read that believers will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Friends, the people of God will be entrusted with some really amazingly important functions in the world to come under the rule of Christ. We will not simply be lowly slaves in the kingdom of Jesus. Although if we were the lowest slave in the kingdom of Jesus, it would still be glory and bliss. But 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And Romans 8 says, if we are the children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And What do we inherit? The kingdom that the Father entrusts to his Son. We will have a share in the kingdom. Say, that sounds outrageously blasphemous. I would agree with you. Except Christ in his grace has promised it in his everlasting word. Listen to the glory that Jesus promises the overcoming believer in Revelation 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end to Him I will give authority over the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The rulership and authority Christ receives from the Father, described in Psalm 2, Christ grants to His people in some wondrous way. Listen to this one. This is, this is too amazing to even think about. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't know what that entails, but whatever this means, that will be glory to sit beside Jesus in his rulership. It's too wondrous to comprehend. But, friends, this is the world that is coming. And we know it because God's word promises it. Christ will return. The wickedness of this world will be put down. Christ will reign in perfect righteousness forever. And, believing, friends, we will have a gloriously exalted position. In that, not because we deserve it, but because this is the amazing, bounteous grace of God, which is ours in Christ. A world of no more sorrow, pain, death, injustice, lies, elections, or conspiracy theories. It'll be a world of perfect peace, bliss, and joy. We will be with Jesus and believers forever. A world where, according to Ephesians 2, He will show us in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us. It really will be something. And so, friends, if you don't know Christ, come to Christ. And if you do know Christ, don't despair. Because Jesus will set all things right. And we will enjoy the spoils of his victory. But until then, we have to endure. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we also will reign with him. We're not there yet. We must patiently endure this world. It's sin, it's blasphemy, it's persecution. We must steadfastly and faithfully stand waiting for Jesus. But this leads to one more application I must make, which is that it is Jesus who brings in the kingdom, not us. Verse 27 says the kingdom shall be given to the people of the saints. The kingdom is something we receive from Jesus. It is not something we take for ourselves. Today there are many impatient Christians who are unwilling to wait for Jesus to bring in the kingdom. These are called dominionists or reconstructionists. And they imagine that they can bring in the kingdom themselves at the ballot box, or by force. But friends, that's not how it works. We don't take the kingdom, we don't seize the power. In this world, we wait patiently for Jesus, and in his own good time, Jesus will conquer the earth, and he will share it with us. So friends, we must be patient, and in his own good timing, these things will come to pass, and we will see the new creation. And so how do we endure this evil time of uncertainty? Well, let's remember this passage. Evil doesn't win, Jesus does. And we will triumph with him. Patiently endure this evil time and hold on to these words. Summarizing Daniel's dream. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever, he says.